Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at a small slice of the works of great American writers while giving some of my commentary and some of my historical perspectives. In today's episode, I will be considering Charles W. Chestnut's The Conjure Woman, published in 1899. So let's first look at Charles Waddell Chestnut. He was born in 1858. He was the first child of two black parents, Anna Marie Chestnut and Andrew Jackson Chestnut. Both were from Fayetteville, North Carolina. And they were of a, part of a small free black um, community in Fayetteville, around 500. Both of his parents, though, were biracial. So Charles Chestnut himself had probably, although I think there's some murkiness involved in here, two white grandfathers. And he was also very light-skinned. In fact, so light-skinned, he probably could have passed as white. He did, He identified as a black man throughout his life. But passing is a major theme in a lot of his works. And over the next few episodes, we'll be looking at a significant handful of Charles Chestnut's work. The Conjure Woman today. In the next episode, we'll look at, or the next couple, we'll look at The, the, the Wife of My Youth and other stories, which are... Uh, a, a selection of stories all about the color line and then two of his novels the first the house behind the cedar which again is all about passing and the color line and then finally the Marrow of tradition which is also about these issues although it's in the context of a racial race riot um, so he keeps coming back to this issue of passing it's something i've talked about a, a little bit in this podcast before particularly when i looked at the harlem renaissance novels because they were also those writers were very very much obsessed with the color line and Charles Chestnut was too, and that's what he seemed to write about all the time. In fact, it shows up even in his nonfiction writing, and I'll, I'll look at those two later on in this series, where he even wrote an essay called What is a White Man? So he very much had in his mind this issue of the color line and where the line could be drawn between white and black and how as hard and fast as traditions and rules were, the real social realities were much more complex. Another thing to say about Charles Chestnut's context is he's very much a child of Reconstruction and Reconstruction politics and, and that world of the post-Civil War era. Although he came from a, brief, a, a free black family, he really did experience Reconstruction, this period of the Civil War, very, very intimately as a, as a young man. His father served in the Union Army as a laborer. And then they, after the war, they moved to back to North Carolina, back to Fayetteville, where Chestnut's father got involved in Reconstruction politics and even got elected to some local office. He went to Howard School, which was a school, one of these many schools that were produced after the Civil War by freed communities trying to get education for young people. And one of these was Howard School. And, and a lot of these were set up with the help of the Freedmen's Bureau. And that, that's an institution that Chestnut talks about quite favorably at a time when many people were, were becoming more and more critical of what Reconstruction did. And he, he kind of sits with W.E.B. Du Bois in this way of, of trying to reassess Reconstruction, although he does it in a much more emotional and personal way, while Du Bois's approach to Reconstruction politics is much more, much more political. So again, what I'm saying here is Charles Chestnut is a product of Reconstruction. He's not like 
the Harlem Renaissance writers a product of the Great Migration. And I think this really makes these writers, the Harlem Renaissance writers I looked at before, very different from Chestnut. In, in a way, Chestnut is much more conservative and the characters he writes about are more formal. He's a little bit, or he's quite a lot obsessed with the differences within the black community, really about class and whether the heritage was free or slaved. And there's a lot of stereotypes that feed into a lot of his depictions of, of characters. Um, and now much of it does feel true to life, but he's really talking about this generation of people who, who came out of slavery and all of the burdens of slavery that came with them into freedom, whether it was a lack of education or cultural assumptions or in some cases it was you know kind of political views and, and cultural views in some cases it was mixed bloodlines a lot and it's something Chestnut again comes back to again and again as firm as white supremacists wanted to talk about the color line and make it seem as in you know very real and impermeable the reality of slavery was the color line was being mixed all the time by the violence of slavery families broken up uh, black women finding creative ways to survive slavery or even in many cases freedom. And then, of course, just the, the rape of so many enslaved women over the years of slavery. The result of this being, of course, many people of mixed bloodlines like Chestnut himself. Now, much of the I think at least certainly the case with with Chestnut, but I think other later 19th century fiction about the South and by Southerners, and I guess Chestnut's a Northerner, but he very much had one foot in the South much of his life. And, you know, he does play with this in his novels, this Ohio-North Carolina connection, and he sets some of his stories in real-life places like this, often in the very similar communities that he grew up with. So he was really writing from what he knew. But, so I don't know if you want to call him a Southerner or not, but he's really out kind of of the South by the time he's writing, and that's very much the issues he's dealing with. Ohio is just kind of a backdrop from time to time. Now, what I want to say here is that this kind of literature is really, in a sense, post-apocalyptic. It's dealing with a world that's, you know, a part of the country that suffered a, a devastating military defeat, an occupation, a destruction of their economy, the overturning of their labor system. And of course, to look at it apocalyptically is to, in a sense, talk about it from the white perspective, right? For the white ruling class in the South, the Civil War was a disaster that led to the destruction of their way of life, right? But it, it of course, liberated freed people, right? And yet we have these carryovers. Nothing could, it's not a clean slate, right? And I think that's what Chestnut is really barreling down on. It's just how nothing was just turned overnight. As revolutionary as Reconstruction and the Civil War were for, for black Americans and for white Southerners as well, tradition carries on. In fact, one of his books is called The Marrow of Tradition, which is just reinforcing this idea that that tradition is so deeply rooted in, in this culture that it really can't be dislodged by just in a few years or maybe even in a, in a generation. And certainly when we look at what happened in Reconstruction, former slaves created for themselves a political culture, a social structure, an economy, a culture that all defined themselves as the opposite of whatever slavery was. So it's, you know, I, I, I agree with Chestnut's overall approach, but I think sometimes he might be downplaying just how transformative black people were themselves. Um, and he has a lot of characters that are kind of rooted in 
old ways of thinking that really come from slavery. And I'm sure these characters are true to life in their own way, but I think that sometimes downplays the narrative we might get from someone like Du Bois, who really wants to see Reconstruction as a bit of a revolution. Okay, so um, the Chikandra woman. Well, I've been debating how to talk about this book. Uh, if I, I was not sure if I wanted to go over each story, and I think I won't, um, but I'll, I'll try to look at them as a group and I'll talk about a few um, that I think are particularly important and, and significant. It's, it's a short novel of really seven interrelated stories. And each story stands on its own and can be read on its own. So you don't really have to read them end to end. You can basically go at them in any order you want. There's a kind of a superstructure to the stories that ties them together. But the meat of each story is distinctive and, and unique and, and, and stands on its own. In fact, these were all published on their own earlier. And The Conjure Woman is really just an edited collection of Chestnut's stories that were published really since the 1880s. So this book was published in 1899, but many of them were written kind of in the mid-1880s. So he talks in the stories, he talks about how this happened like 10 years before. But So it's really, if, if we say the stories were written in the 1880s and 10 years before that, so these are stories right in the, the kind of the closing years of Reconstruction or set maybe in Reconstruction themselves. So... Here, well, here's the basic superstructure of the novel. We have a white man and his wife from the north. And I think they're from Ohio or they're from the Great Lakes region anyways. And he grows grapes. And his wife is sick. His wife is having all kinds of health problems. And the doctors advise a new climate for his wife. So he looks at different places. And finally, he decides the most practical thing to do is to go to the south. And, and the south has a lot of advantages for him in the sense it has cheap land. Uh, cheap labor and the climate that's advised is a good place for growing grapes. So he chooses the American South. So he goes to, I think it is North Carolina. So kind of chestnuts always flopping back and forth between North Carolina and Ohio in a lot of these stories. So this guy, we I don't even think we get his name. It's just him and his wife. And they go there and they buy some land and they end up buying a, a vineyard and they raise grapes. Now, when they get down there, they meet this man named Julius. And Julius, often referred to as Uncle Julius, but um, that's, a, you know, it, it's just Julius is his name. And he will, and he kind of gives advice and commentary and thoughts about different things that decisions that our narrator is trying to make. So our narrator, you know, of course, in one story, for instance, like, should I buy this grapevine? And he says, no, you shouldn't because it's conjured. And then it goes into this long story. Julius will go into this long story explaining all these things that happened in the times of slavery and then come to the conclusion that you should do this or you should not do this. So in one case, it was don't use this wood because the wood's haunted. In one case, it was you should carry a rabbit's foot. Uh, in one case, it was like, don't buy a mule by a horse or something like that. And he's always trying to push the narrator to make a certain decision one way or another. And usually at the end of the story, after hearing it, they'll comment on, you know, should we really take this stuff seriously or not? And But then sometimes he'll change his mind or he'll do something a little bit different. But what you realize is that Julius is telling these tales in part to influence the opinion of, of our narrator. 
And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Now, there's a careful point we need to make here, and that is we this doesn't mean that Julius is a liar, right? He's not creating these stories just out of his head to manipulate the narrator. And that's one way maybe you want to read it, that it's all part of like a survival strategy that comes out of slavery, of, of kind of trying to manipulate the emotions or use black culture as a way to to work to get what you want from white people without confronting them directly, right? There, there is a bit of siftiness, shiftiness to Julius's stories. But the things he talks about in the stories, you know, of course there's magic and there's the supernatural. And we have no reason not to believe that Julius totally accepts these supernatural elements as real and as part of his life. And, you know, things that are really in the world. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, the things he's talking about, uh, slaves being whipped, slaves being uh, sold away, bought and sold, being exploited, um, children being sold away from their parents. These are things that really happened to people in slavery. And on that, there's no reason to think Julius was making that stuff up. Yeah, there's an over, there's kind of a, a setting to it all set in magic and, and assuming the reality of magic. And we can take that or leave that. But I think the core of these stories are things that really did happen to Julius. And yeah, he might be using these stories to manipulate the narrator or trying to manipulate the narrator. But I don't think that means that we should call Julius a liar. I think he is responding to things that happened to him in his own into his own life and things he experienced and witnessed while a slave. Another thing to say about this whole issue of is Julius a liar or not is the power relation between these two characters, the narrator and Julius, is clear from the beginning. Julius really has nothing. He, he's very poor, um, very little education. Um, what he has are these stories, and this is his this is his bargaining ship in life, is his experience in slavery and what he can offer to this, let's be frank, a carpetbagger coming from the North, really for legitimate reasons, I suppose. But yeah, he's trying to take advantage of the fact that land is cheap in the South after the Civil War and there's opportunities for Northern capital to come in and, and you know, develop the land. He's very condescending throughout the novel. He, he looks down on Julius. And then, of course, he hires Julius at some point not because he's a brilliant storyteller, although maybe he, they like they seem to like having him around for these stories, but you know to drive the cart. So he's he's part of the working class of the South, just trying to eke out a survival. So this power imbalance between the two, you know, puts these stories in a certain context that we need to be aware of. It's it's not Julius taking advantage really of the narrator. That's a very superficial surface reading of it. It's it's the narrator's the one taking advantage of Julius for much of it, the story, and completely ignoring his perspective on things, often disregarding his his point of view, and then belittling him for having certain beliefs and looking at the world in a certain way. The stories in The Conjure Woman provide lots of local flavor, uh, most predominantly in Julius's dialogue. And most of the story, most of the bulk of this tale is written as a word-for-word description of Julius's story. So yeah, we have a narrator, a white man from the North, but the stories themselves are driven really by Julius's, you know, speaking. And Chestnut writes it in Southern Black dialect, if you will. I, I mean, I don't know if dialect's the right term even for this. I, it's, it's an accent maybe, but, you know, let's just say dialect for lack of a, 
a better term. I, I mean, I don't know the technical linguistic term for for what this is because it's it's clearly English. So and, it, and anyone li- reading it or listening to it can, should be able to understand it. So in that sense, you know, dialects, as I understand, are supposed to be incomprehensible, even if, you know, like in China, we talk about dialects as, you know, Cantonese and Shanghainese, people who, you know, speak those languages can't understand each other, right? And that's even though they're both Chinese. So that's that's how I understood dialect. So this, I don't think quite qualifies, but it's something very different. It's something very distinctive to the way Southern blacks talked at the time. And Chestnut puts a lot of work into trying to describe this. I don't know if he's the first to do it, and I know others would do it later. Harlem Renaissance writers did it, especially Zora Neale Hurston did this a lot. But Chestnut maybe was one of the first to do this. So at least the earliest examples of it that I've come across. We also get, in, in, in the perspective of like local flavor, we get the superstitions, the folklore of Southern blacks, especially rooted in slavery. We, we have the sense that Northern audiences are very interested in this and fascinated by it and kind of get some entertainment value out of hearing these stories because that's brought up a couple times, especially uh, narrator's wife very much likes to have Julius around for these stories. And they sometimes will even comment on them and say things like, you know, this story isn't your best, right? And you've told better stories before, almost like it is an episode in a, in a TV show. And you say, well, you know, that, that episode was bad. And so the narrator is this kind of reflecting a bit of these northern audiences, which are really curious about their defeated brothers and the South and the just the world that they they have some awareness of. Of course, many men of the narrator's generation would have been in the Civil War and maybe had spent some time in the South, but in many ways they, they experienced it as a foreign country. And so there's a bit of curiosity here and a bit of a gaze, a colonial gaze almost, if you want to put it that way. So even in the 1900, when this, well, this novel was published in 1899, these sectional divides really were strong. So, but the South was militarily defeated. It was occupied. It was reformed. And it would be under the influence of the North, cultural influence, political influence, and economic, certainly, influence. You know, I think, yeah, you had kind of the solid South for the Democratic Party, but national elections, you know, that didn't get them very far in national elections often, right? You often had Republicans winning in the so-called Gilded Age, and and I'd have to go look up the exact elections, but the South, had, and Southern politicians had a lot of power within the South, of course, they were implementing Jim Crow and disfranchisement and, and white supremacy in various ways, but on the national scale, they often felt that their perspectives were being ignored. I don't know if that's entirely true, actually, because, you know, you have things like Plessy versus Ferguson. So at the national level, Southern racist policies were being, of course, supported and backed up. But there's certainly this massive economic influence that Northern capital could bring. Remember, during the antebellum period, Southern landowners invested their capital, their profits into land and in human beings. And yeah, they kept the land after the war. There was no land reform. But they, they lost all the capital they had invested in, in human beings, in human labor. And so that was a lot of kind of the built-up capital of the South was devastated. And that's, that was part of the economic realities of the time. And it was something that brought a lot of interest of Northern capital to come to the South to invest, to build mines and take advantage of cheap labor and things like that. Certainly a big part of our discomfort in this story comes from seeing this 
very abusive relationship between the narrator and Julius. The narrator humors Julius, is amused by him, but he doesn't really see him that seriously. And he's really never a serious threat to the profitability of the farm and his plans for, for developing developing this land. So, for instance, if we take the very first story, the Goofer Goober, grapevine, and this is even before our narrator buys the land and he's actually looking to buy a grapevine, and Julius pleads with him not to do it. I was trying to convince him not to do it. Well, what do we have here? We have Julius on the land that he worked for much of his life as a slave, making a living by selling grapes on a, on a vineyard that he and other slaves on this plantation planted and cared for. They were forbidden from eating from it, and that's how the, the whole story, how the story story emerges, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But Julius, this was his home, and this was his source of income, and this is how he survived. The narrator comes in with money and buys this out from under him, and then hires Julius, you know, to run the cart. In a sense, what, what happens to Julius here is he's almost proletarianized by the narrator. Now, he, yeah, he didn't have a very comfortable and rich life before, but he was in a sense an independent, you know, entrepreneur of sorts, right? He's, he's just taking these grapes and selling them and eating them and using them. But along comes this northern businessman, buys up this land and, and then says, well, you can stay on as a, as a you know, driving the cart. This kind of makes the narrator's pretenses in, in the humor toward, you know, that he uses Julius for a little bit more disgusting. They're not equals. Yes, as equals. If he had approached Julius as an equal, the narrator could have learned from Julius about the topics that are of interest to him, learned about the local cultivation and, you know, about how to grow grapes and things like that. But that's never the relationship we have. It's always a relationship of the white man dominating this, this man. Now, in a way, Chestnut is able to turn this on the table because much, the most memorable character in all this is Julius. And anyone who reads these stories comes away with a feeling of investment and attra attraction and interest in Julius and his stories. And he's really the moral heart of, of the tale. And the white people, I think, aren't even named. So I think Chestnut is having a little bit of fun with that. But the reality of their relationship is one of colonial domination. All right. So... Um, I think I talked about the setting. The characters, there's a few main ones and there's a lot of background characters. So I'm not going to be able to talk about them all. The main narrator and his wife really provide the overall structure of the story and, and are responsible for it existing in, in kind of a narrative sense. And of course, the heart of this, of this are the stories of Uncle Julius. And Julius himself is often a, observes as an observer in the stories. He's, I can't think of any time where he's an actor in the stories. He's always talking about other people and what happened to them in slavery. Now, we don't we know less about what happened to Julius himself in slavery because he's almost always an observer. The way we're an observer and the way the narrator ends up being an observer of all these events. So it's it's a reporting on what happened in slavery. We have Aunt Peggy. Aunt Peggy is the the conjure woman of the given in the title and she's responsible for a lot of the supernatural elements in the story. The Landowner, the slaveholder, is Mars, Mars uh, McAdoo. Dougal McAdoo is his name. And he shows up in a lot of tales, obviously. 
And each story that Julius tells has its own cast of characters. One of the more memorable might be Sis Becky. Um, there's a whole story about her called Sis Becky's Pickaninny. But anyways, I guess that's all I want to really say about the characters here. Um, I, I really want to focus on the themes. Again, these stories, this novel, these stories are really stories of the generation coming out of slavery, both on both sides of the color line, right? And now we don't really have on stage any white Southerners in the story. They're always talked about by Julius. So, but we have Northerners who experience the Civil War and the aftermath of slavery and, and come to the South. We have Julius as a representative of that generation that, that came to freedom across these events and then comes to terms with them and, and experiences freedom in various ways, but still kind of lives with the burden and the memories and the experiences and the cultural baggage of, of his time in slavery. It's, it reminds me very much of the Harlem Renaissance writers who were doing the same thing in a way, but talking about the Great Migration. I mean, these are people who maybe had some, I'm thinking especially of like Toomer's Cain, where there's really this idea of this, this transition to being urban. Right. And that first generation of, of people living in the city, of blacks living in the city after enduring centuries in the, in agriculture. And but still carrying with them all the burdens of the South and the color line and obsessions with with color that we, we, we talked about when we looked at those Harlem Renaissance stories. Again, we have seven stories here and I, I'm not going to go through them all, but I'll, I'll just mention a, a few. The, the first is called the Goofer Grapevine, and there the dominant figure is is Henry. Um, what we have in this story is basically these slaves were eating the grapes, and of course, from the master's point of view, they were he was stealing the grapes. They were stealing the grapes, but they're of course they were the ones who cultivated the land and and made the vineyard grow. They're responsible for there being grapes at all. So I don't think we can say they were stealing it. They were just you know, claiming what their labor produced. But from the master's point of view, they were stealing the grapes. And he, he was making wine from these grapes, and it was a big, good source of income. So he basically goes to the conjure woman and has her cast a spell that basically says, if you eat these grapes, you'll die. And this keeps the slaves from eating it. Now, Henry comes. Henry's a new slave. He doesn't know this. He eats the grapes, and he's cursed. And the slaves take him to, to the conjure woman and say, it's not fair. He didn't know the rules. And so she kind of cures him, but he still has some of the curse in him. And his curse makes it so that when the vineyard withers and dies every year, he would get sick and die. Or not die, but get really sick and weak and seem to die. But in the summer, when the vineyard is growing and vibrant, he would get strong again. And when the master figures out that he's going through these cycles, he would then sell him when he, in the summer and make a lot of money selling the slave. And then when he was dying in the winter, he'd go back to those that plantation that he sold him to, and, and he would complain. The other planter would, of course, complain that, oh, my slave you sold me is dying. And then he would, the original owner of Henry said to him, well, I'll buy him back cheap for you, maybe like for a quarter of the price you spent. And then, of course, he agrees to it, and then he would be able to do this again every, every summer. So although it's a story about a vineyard being cast a spell on in Julius's efforts to try to keep this source of income for himself when this carpetbagger comes in from the north. In fact, it at the heart, it's really a story about the 
buying and selling of human beings in the slave in the slave economy. In another story, post Sandy, this is about a haunted lumber. And it's about Julius is trying to prevent a schoolhouse, an old schoolhouse on the land from being turned into a kitchen. Um, basically, the narrator wants to tear down the schoolhouse and use the wood to build a kitchen for his wife. And Julius doesn't want that because he wants the schoolhouse to be used for a congregation he's a part of. And so he tells a story about this haunted, um, haunted lumber. But that also is all in the backdrop of the brutality and the horrors of, of slavery. The best of these maybe about really getting at the heart of what slavery is about is Sis Becky's Piccaninny. And of course, it's as it says, it's about Sis Becky's child. And it's it's ostensibly about the virtues of having a rabbit's foot. And Julius is trying to say you should have a rabbit's foot to the narrator's wife who's falling ill. And his proof for that is the story of Sis Becky. And he, then he just goes in this long description about Sis Becky's misfortunes in her life. And the center of that is her child is sold away, but also her husband. And, you know, and she's miserable because of this, of course. And what does it have to do with the rabbit's foot? Well, Julius in the end says, well, she didn't have a rabbit's foot. <laughs> that's why these bad things happen to her. Obviously, that's not why those bad things happen to her. The reason those bad things happen to her is because this was integral to how slavery worked in the pre-Civil War South. And buying and selling of human lives, breaking up families was just business. Yet, you know, the supernatural element of it, you know, kind of tricks us into thinking it's really, these are stories about folklore and the occult when they're not. They're stories about the brutality of slavery. Now that said, there's nothing wrong with reading this as a window into black culture or even to as a novel of the occult and speculative fiction. I mean, there are various levels you can read it at. The themes of this, this novel, this set of stories, well, there's a lot. It, it, first of all, it's a very, very short book. It, it takes a while to read because you have to get used to the dialect. It's a lot easier to listen to. In fact, there's a really wonderful LibriVox audio recording of, of this by a, a man named James, James White, I believe his name is. And he actually recorded a bunch of Chestnut's work for LibriVox. And, you know, if you listen to him, he's very seamless and he gets this really, so it's really easy to understand. It's actually easier to listen to this than to read it. But there's once you, but even if you read it, once you figure out kind of the code, it, the, the code, you, you can manage it. But, you know, I recommend if you have trouble with it and you want to read this, that that audiobook is helpful. And it's only a couple hours because, you know, the, the, the novel really is only 90 pages, these seven stories. Um, but even within that, it's, it's jam packed with interesting themes and ideas and, and arguments. Um, I think the biggest one is something I've already referred to a couple times. It's just the experience of this recon reconstruction generation. It, it's what historian Ira Berlin called the freedom generation. Those African-Americans and free blacks who witnessed the end of slavery and, you know, were kind of sat one foot on each side of, of slavery. And that's going to be... Chestnut's obsession and basically all of his works is this this particular generation. And I think it's a generation that hasn't you know, like by the Harlem Renaissance writers, these those writers talked about people who really didn't experience slavery. I'm not, 
so there's something kind of really that Chesson offers that you don't often you don't always get from um, like later black writers when you have that massive generation of of black writers reaching national prominence during the Harlem Renaissance. You know, Chestnuts of the old way. No, wait, Du Bois is also able to talk about this transition quite effectively in The Souls of Black Folk. You know, and I'll look at that after I finish um, Chestnut. So anyway, I, I just think that's a it's, some, it's a real contribution of Chestnut's work that's that you don't always get in literature. And I was looking through the Library of America, and I can't think of any writers, with the exception of maybe Johnson, that does this. And even Johnson doesn't do it quite as well, I think, as, as Chestnut does. Certainly the psychology of, of slavery is a theme that's discussed here. Um, we really see, you know, like the long-term psychological burden of slavery. And this is something even the narrator confesses to once or twice. He even says of Julius, he maintained a peculiar personal attitude. Some may call it predial rather than proprietary. He had been accustomed until long after middle life to look upon himself as the property of another. When this relation was no longer possible, owing to the war and to his master's death and to the dispersion of the family, he had been unable to break off entirely the mental habits of a lifetime, but had attached himself to the old plantation of which he seemed to consider himself an apprentice. In this little passage, Chestnut is, in fact, summarizing everything he has to say in all of his novels, which is just the long-term scars of slavery. And there it's talked about psychologically, but he talks about it in other ways too. But it's most of his novels are psychological novels. Now, of course, the violence of slavery is talked about again and again, whether it's violence to the family or just physical brutality um, inflicted on, on human beings. It's talked about again and again in every one of these stories and just how deeply violent the whole institution was. There's no glamorization of, of slavery or of the South in this novel. It's a very, very brutal read in this sense. And rightfully so, of course. Another theme certainly is, is uplift and progress. The narrator sees himself as an agent of progress and uplift and kind of bringing civilization to the South. At one point he says to Julius, you got to stop believing these old, silly beliefs if you're ever going to advance if you, your people are ever going to advance and it's it's a kind of a it's a very condescending way of talking about it first he assumes julius is a representative of all black people and therefore if he's uplifted then that somehow he would be carrying it on for the whole race it's it's a really a weird um sentence and, and i think it's intentionally that way um, there's other examples of progress too. There's even a moment in one of Julius's stories where a Yankee comes down to try to improve the grape cultivation techniques. So this idea of the North as the, the tutor of a backward and fractured and declining South is something he comes back to often in, in the story. Um, and finally, I just, the, the whole issue of magic and fate, I think is really interesting. And I think, Fate is something we use when we have this feeling of helplessness, right? It's we don't understand why horrible things happen to us and therefore we embrace superstitions or magic or religion, you know, like in the Middle Ages, if your crops die, well, you know, how do you explain that? How do you explain a bad year? Well, the witch did it, right? Or there's some evil spirit out there, or, you know, maybe we did something bad with God and we're, we're not on God's good side or whatever it might be. 
we kind of fill in the, with the supernatural as a way of kind of understanding and put, giving meaning to just the randomness of life. And a lot of stuff happened to characters really have no fault of their own. And, but it's not random in the sense that it's, it doesn't quite work what I'm trying to say here because the randomness is, it's totally implicit implied in the system, but it's more about the powerlessness maybe instead of the randomness. That's what I'm trying to say. Just this helplessness of, of these characters that Julius introduces us to, you know, all the, you, they can only explain it with magic. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. But even without that, I think th even if you don't want to look at it that way, this, this novel stands as a very, very interesting story of just of the occult. I, I think you could read this as a series of speculative fiction, even if you want um, read it alongside like H.P. Lovecraft or something, who was also writing around the same time period. Uh, I, I don't know many people that maybe look at it that way, but it might be something for people who are interested in supernatural fiction to, to just take it literally as supernatural fiction and, and see what they can get out of it. Um, but anyways, a really, really wonderful read. I, I certainly very much encourage it. Encourage you. In fact, I encourage you to read all of Chestnut's work if you're interested in this period of especially African-American history or Southern history. Um, or even just U.S. history in, in the generation after, after Reconstruction. One of the few windows I know of liter you know, in literature that get at that period of time really, really well. So that's going to do it. In the very next episode, I will be looking at more of his stories. Um, in fact, there's a collection called The Wife of His Youth. And I'll cover that over two episodes because it's a little bit more than... 150 pages or so. So I'll break it up into two episodes. Um, I think it's 13 stories. So I'll look at maybe six and then seven of them. So that was actually published the same year as um, The Conjure Woman. It's like he published a bunch of his stories in, in you know, an anthology at this year's, but he put the ones about Julius. And there's actually more Julius stories, which the Library of America edition I have here collected, but they're under a part called the uncollected story. So he had some Julius stories he didn't include in the Country Woman. And, and I'll get to those later. But there were the, the other stories that aren't tied to Uncle Julius were collected in this book called The Wife of His Youth. And they are really fast. Every one of them is a stand-up great story. Uh, there's not a, like a single misstep in those stories, I think. They, they're, they're all really wonderful. So I'm really looking forward to talking about those with you. So I'll do that. I'll start doing that in the next episode. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any of comments of your own, please leave them below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, I'll be back next time with, with some of the stories in The Wife of His Youth by Charles Waddell Chestnut. <laughs>